0: law, policy, and markets.
1: We don't know what consumer behavior is going to be in an environment that is experiencing a level of unemployment that we have right now. We're standing on the edge of an event horizon that we can't quite see past.
0: Welcome to Millbank Conversations. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by John Williams, who leads the derivatives practice in Millbank's Alternative Investment Group, based in New York. Let's get to it. Hey, John, thanks very much for taking the time today to talk. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. We've been pretty busy looking at questions from clients over the last few few weeks with the COVID-19 crisis emerging and the Federal Reserve and the Congress and Treasury having a pretty robust response to it. And I know that intersects quite a bit with your derivatives practice. How active have you been looking at these questions?
1: There are a lot of questions and there are questions about what questions to ask even. I think we're going we're gonna to find ourselves in some uh, uncharted territory uh, over the next several months, I imagine.
0: I know one of the things that's gotten a lot of attention in the press was the initial risk because of illiquidity of some of the credit markets freezing up. And the Fed took a pretty strong actions to inject liquidity early on. One of the programs that they did was dusting off the old 2008 TALF program for TALF 2.0. Can you explain how that liquidity facility works and what it was designed to do briefly?
1: The idea is, of course, the the range of things that the federal government is doing are are, are intended to try to figure out ways to get cash into the real economy as quickly as possible and in as rational a way as possible. And, of course, one of them is to keep the, the conveyor belt of structured finance going so that mortgage lenders and banks can continue to make loans of a variety of different types, especially consumer loans. And so the original TALF program was a a mechanism by which mortgage uh, lenders and banks and other credit originators could continue to create securities to take those loans off their balance sheets and move them into the capital markets in a situation in which the capital markets frozen or partly frozen. And so the role of the program was to allow the federal government to lend money to uh, particularly credit institutions that and then those institutions could use the relevant more the, the relevant securities covered by the program as collateral and because that was essentially the kind of end of the conveyor belt the bigger that the government can make that in other words the broader range of securities that it can cover the better it is for juicing liquidity in the economy. Of course, the flip side of that is from a taxpayer standpoint, you don't want the government to end up holding the bag on a lot of terrible credits. And so the program necessarily has to have a number of restrictions as to what types of assets can be covered, both in terms of class of assets. So for example, the TALF program covers auto loans, credit card loans, et cetera, mortgage loans securities that are that are backed by those those types of loans. But it doesn't cover commercial real estate at, at the moment, at least. And so there will, there is now and there will continue to be some debate about how broadly that should be constructed, which assets should be covered. So we saw, for example, the first stage of the dusting off of the TALF program did not include the CLOs because it did not include securities backed by leveraged loans. But that was changed just recently, so that that now is included. I think that's because policymakers recognize the importance of corporate loans in the credit environment these days. Now, I think there are still some significant issues in the TALF program that will constrain its ability, at least with respect to leveraged loans, for example, to have an immediate impact on the economy, because there are going to be restrictions about how newly minted the the underlying loans are allowed to be this was an area of debate in the great financial crisis as well uh, around the TALF program uh, because obviously if the rule is that you can that the program only covers securities that have underlying instruments that are issued after the program is announced it takes a long time for securities to be packaged that would include only those loans. And therefore, the desired liquidity boost takes quite a while to materialize. What they did in the past was set the cutoff date some number of months earlier than the announcement of the program. In fact, that was determined on an asset class by asset class basis. So I think we're going to see some movement around that in the current market as well as people start to try to understand the scope of the impact of the COVID crisis on credit in different asset classes. And also, as people come to understand how solid the, the elements, the pieces of the financial institutional structure are.
0: Just to unpack that for a second. So basically, if you have an economy where there are consumers taking out loans, and they need to do that, right, to continue to, to function, so they need to take out loans for buying a house so you have a residential mortgage the results they want to go to school they take out a student loan they want to buy a car they get a car loan credit card receivables you know for the whole range of consumer debt and in order for banks to have the money to make those loans they need to raise additional liquidity and the trading in the secondary market of these derivatives that are tied to those loan pools is really the the biggest way that 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 happens and if i understand it correctly of course when there's constraints in that credit market particular liquidity constraints that prevent some of those trades from happening, that would gum up the whole works. And that's why the Fed interjects and says, hey, we're going to put in some money to make sure that these markets are are still functioning. You mentioned commercial mortgages not being included. And I know there's discussion around expanding it. Why does that make a difference?
1: I actually am not sure how heavily one should come out in favor or against including commercial real estate assets in the program. But Any asset that is categorically excluded from the program will be treated differently by uh, institutional lenders in terms of how heavily they have to weight the risk. Now, we don't yet know as we sit here how problematic or not problematic that may be for the commercial real estate asset class because we don't know exactly how constrained institutional lenders are going to be, but obviously if they do feel constrained, the fact that they can't move commercial real estate CLOs or other securities backed by commercial real estate loans into a tau facility means that they're going to be much more cautious about buying those securities, which ultimately will put pressure on the ability of anybody to issue any additional loans in that area. And I think given the rest of the impact of the COVID crisis, you can expect, I think, that the commercial real estate Area will be one where we'll we'll see a very significant impairment of credits.
0: When the Fed is looking at this, I know one of their concerns too is making sure that as the Fed's balance sheet expands, they're not taking on undue risk. And in the past, many of the liquidity support facilities that the Fed has provided have really been focused on higher quality assets. Whether it's you know AAA derivative pools, or if you look at some of the other non derivative types of programs that they have for for corporate loans, they were looking at investment grade. Uh, issuers initially. With the Fed expanding to deal with the really sudden abrupt decline that we've seen both in demand and supply and the credit market effects that flow from that, is there a risk that the Fed is taking on maybe assets that are going to prove to be problematic later? You know, 10 years ago with the financial crisis, they emerged relatively unscathed and that liquidity was by and large returned in some cases at a profit. I'm not sure that would be the case this time
1: yeah it's certainly it's certainly a risk i mean i i think you know given that we know as jamie diamond has pointed out and many others that this current scenario we're in is perhaps a few standard deviations away from any of the models even the most stressed models that were used that have been used in the stress tests that banks have been put through since the financial crisis we really don't know what the impact is going to be we don't know what consumer behavior is going to be in an environment that is experiencing the level of unemployment that we have right now so i think you're right there are certainly risks there in just another area where we're standing on the edge of an event horizon that we can't quite see past
0: one of the things i know you've looked at is how defaults in the underlying credits Ripple through the system, and obviously, when one puts together one of these derivative securities, initially there's assumptions about what default rates will be. There's you know ratings made and credit assessments made on the underlying borrower's ability and and likelihood to repay the underlying debt within within the pools. How is it now that they're delinked, flowing through the system? If we have in this situation forbearance perhaps being given or government protections or relief being given to underlying borrowers.
1: When this type of thing happens, when we have these kinds of major dislocations, any kind of structured credit or synthetic credit arrangement has to be looked at very carefully to try to figure out whether there are some gaps in the system. You know, in the mortgage backed area, the market is seeing this right now with what's happening to mortgage servicers the model is built around the idea that there may be some borrowers who don't pay their mortgages on time but the people who hold the securities are kept whole by the mortgage servicers coming up with the money in the meantime and then the process works itself out over time but what's happening right now is because there's so many people not paying their mortgages the mortgage servicers are stuck with a much larger hole at the moment, and they can't carry that for however long we think it may continue for a couple of months or whatever, then that's an area where possibly some injection of additional liquidity might be helpful. But it's also an area where that particular timing risk was not one that I think people really spent a lot of time considering. So that's an example of, of a place where a hole can open up In terms of uh, other kinds of synthetic credit, there is going to be some potential differences in incentives between entities who actually hold loans versus investors who may have taken exposure to a loan by way of a total return swap or a synthetic risk transfer transaction or a pure credit derivative, all of those things may behave differently than the underlying instruments and the incentives that we used to expect for everybody to follow might be different under certain circumstances now.
0: So what does that mean for the practical ability for lenders or servicers, more precisely, to handle restructurings and to facilitate them? I know that was one of the challenges last time where we had, you know, an asset bubble especially in real estate that led to a financial crisis. Here, it's different. We have a pandemic that's led to an economic shock, which will then perhaps result in in troubles for borrowers repaying. But I know you have restructuring triggers and this kind of mismatch. How in practice would restructurings be affected?
1: Well, I guess we've seen some government efforts to facilitate or encourage lenders to work with borrowers to restructure their debt to forbear from pursuing remedies so for example the cares act has a specific provision in it that says that any regulated financial institution is permitted to undertake a restructuring with the borrower without having to then treat the loan as a distressed asset for purposes of the accounting rules and that has potentially important regulatory capital and financial reporting consequences for regulated financial institutions. And so you can expect that that should, and of course this is the intent of the provision in the CARES Act, that should incentivize lenders to undertake those restructurings. On the other hand, credit markets are pretty complicated and layered, and there are a lot of these loans that the economic risk of which is actually held by some other investor, a hedge fund or a pension fund or something like that, often on some kind of leverage basis through a total return swap or or something similar, or sometimes through a synthetic risk transaction. Those transactions usually have credit derivatives terms embedded in them. So it's possible that you could have a restructuring credit event under one of those instruments that would cause a crystallization of a loss at a mark-to-market level for the end investor, at the same time as the bank is working with the borrower not to default, and that is an example of misalignment of incentives that wouldn't have really been expected when when people entered into the transaction in the first place.
0: I, I guess one of the other mismatches is in valuation, and I know whether it's under you know Topic Eight Fifteen, the any of the accounting and reporting rules that apply for derivatives and hedges valuation becomes a challenge when the markets underneath are either non-functioning or illiquid how are valuation issues playing out i
1: think that people really for a lot of instruments are seeing to the extent that you can get valuations at all by way of quotes for example that's those quotes are going to be for lower prices usually and that in a lot of credit instruments or facilities is driving margin calls by the banks pursuant to the terms of the underlying agreements so that just is a pinch on liquidity for investors and you can see many investors are finding ways to be able to meet those margin calls but in some cases they aren't and we saw recently in the markets, a lawsuit between one large dealer bank and a mortgage uh, lender in the repo market where normally the bank in this case would be able to just quickly look at the value of the securities and if the margin call isn't met, the bank would be able to liquidate those securities and, and terminate the transaction and leaving the original borrower, the, the seller under the repo with an obligation to pay whatever the loss is. In the current market, though, liquidity was so seized up that the, the borrower has argued that it wasn't reasonable to hold an auction of those securities to determine what the loss amount was supposed to be. And I think we'll, we'll see what, what happens in that particular case in, in the courts, but it's obviously an unusual circumstance that we faced in March from a liquidity standpoint. So there's there's some weight really to be given there to the arguments to be made by both sides of the
0: equation. We've talked a lot about the use of derivatives to provide liquidity or leverage. The benefits of that, obviously it's they're also used quite a bit, or hedging tools generally are used quite a bit to reduce risk. And in situations where we have sudden changes in commodity prices, sudden changes in demand, sudden changes in uh, interest rates, and a lot of uncertainty going forward, of course, there's both more risk, there's more actual and implied volatility, and there's more appetite for protection. From these things, how is the mix of your business and client calls changing even in areas for example where you and I have worked together in the project finance space where derivatives could be used with respect to energy projects uh, or financing facilities where there's concerns about either currencies or interest rates
1: if you look at, at all of the derivatives markets you see there is a very significant increase in volume in in many instruments and in general the infrastructure in the market I think has worked very well in the sense that there haven't been and we talked about one example where liquidity has led to a dispute but that's because the underlying mortgage securities had a very limited market but in most cases the derivatives markets really are functioning pretty smoothly and not introducing as they did in, in the financial crisis additional complexity around concerns about counterparty credit and whether the people who are supposed to pay off on your derivative are really going to be able to do so. So the markets are really functioning well in that sense and we see more more people asking to access them right now. So in my practice we're getting a lot of people calling up asking to accelerate interest rate hedges that they were planning to do or people coming to ask to do interest rate hedging that they hadn't previously thought they wanted to bother doing because of the fact that rates are so low and and people are looking to lock that in to protect themselves against certain kinds of risks. So it, it is leading to more activity of a certain type. Some of it is Actually quite plain vanilla, which is what you see in the regular derivatives markets in the sense that people actually are using them, I think, to, to manage risk. And so far, they haven't themselves introduced any other surprising risks.
0: I guess if you look at counterparty risk, clearly it matters that we're not in a financial crisis, right? So we have well-capitalized banks. And if you look globally, because I know our derivatives practice spans the world, and when you're talking to our colleagues in London or in Asia are there any concerns with respect to payments systems or clearing and settlement globally or are we in a much better position than we were in prior financial crises
1: we're in a much better position i think that most of the work that was done to try to ensure that the plumbing of the financial system would work when stressed seems to have paid off so far That's what I would say. So I'm not hearing a lot of concerns about whether a particular party that is intermediating risk is actually going to be there to be able to do it. Now, I think it's probably worth remembering that the financial crisis actually started in July of 2007 in the housing finance world and didn't arrive on Main Street until more than a year later. So we'll have to see how these things play out over the next few months.
0: And the last thing, if I may, if you put on your crystal ball and look forward, I'm sure there's room for innovation and creativity in this space. And often a crisis will inspire new creative ways for people to think. There's other technologies happening with non-bank fintech players, with blockchain and ledger changes in the industry. What do you think in the next few years after we get to a whatever the new normal is, you'll be looking at that's kind of more, more creative than we've seen so far.
1: In the short term and medium term, we're actually going to see less financial innovation because what we're seeing right now is that attachment to central bank liquidity is an essential feature of several aspects of the system and that's something that people really seem to need to rely on. I think that's actually, in practice, going to constrain some of the innovation that was going on in payment systems and the like, because people will not be sure that they're as safe. But beyond that, I think we will see growth in payment systems that are essentially attached to various forms of online commerce that have some kind of major brand recognition. So I think we're going to see more of that. But that also is not really a formula for innovation. So I I guess you could count me as a pessimist on what kind of innovations we're going to see in this area.
0: Somebody told me once, if you have a lawyer who's not a pessimist, you need a new lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, John, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy. Stay healthy and stay in touch. Thanks, Alan. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Millbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at millbank.com.